Yeah, let's not kick any animals to start this one. No, no, I think we're going to try to leave the PETA bashing in season one. So, (laughs) welcome to the Is For Podcast. No, sorry, tonight it is just Danger and Monster. Say hi, Monster. Yes. Hello, everybody. Yes, uh, Sarge is on vacation. Good for him. Everybody needs a vacation. Oh, he deserves it. Yes, he does. Yes, he does. That man does... Does more than anybody else I know, honestly. I don't know how that guy gets as much done as he does, but... Agreed. So, in addition to being a fine father, fine husband, uh, he just does a lot. But anyway, so we are going to be talking the letter F. F is for Friday the 13th. We begin with the letter A. A is for... M is for murder. E is for... Danger! And, uh... Dodge. With... Yeah. This actually is, uh, we're going to be focusing more on the first movie, because the first movie, in my opinion, is probably the best of all of them. But, real quick, Friday the 13th is, of course, the horror franchise that we all know, that consists of 12 films, a television series, novels, comic books, video games, and tie-in merchandise. Like everything else gets t-shirts, lunchboxes, toothpaste, and whatever else. Yeah, so while focusing on Jason Voorhees, the first movie does not, actually. You actually don't know who the killer is for most of it. This is going to be spoilers abound if you haven't seen the first Friday yeah. the 13th. Uh, just stop now and watch it. Uh, it's a great movie. Like I said, the best one in the series. I think that because of the subsequent sequels, it gets lumped into that slasher kind of just body count kind of films. Right. But the first one is almost Hitchcockian and almost more like Psycho than it is like a slasher. It's just a little bit more violent. I actually will say that the first one is, like you said, more Hitchcockian, but it's like he watched Jaws and a lot of Hitchcock and was like, I got something. (laughs) Even though I know the idea comes from somewhere else, like the whole filming of it, I feel like is more of Jaws, which movie trivia, in case you didn't know, the reason why they filmed the uh, first person view of the shark was because that the shark broke a lot. The mechanical shark broke. And so Steven Spielberg came up with the way of filming it that way. Uh, Also, another connection to Jaws, Don Mancini, who does the score for Friday the 13th, drew a lot of inspiration from the Jaws thing. Yep, which that's trivia for later, but I guess we're getting that out. Sorry, (laughs) you brought up Jaws. I I did, I did. I think it may be at the top of my mind because I was researching researching this. So, all right, uh, just to run through a little bit more, just to kind of place a couple of names. The original film was actually uh, created to cash in on Halloween. It was all, you know, spurred by the idea of Halloween and the success that it had. It was written by Victor Miller and produced and directed by Sean S. Cunningham, which uh, Mr. Cunningham had a love-hate relationship with the entire series, but you know, that, that first movie was really his baby, of course. The films as a whole have grossed uh, $468 million at the box office, which it, can, it can't go without saying that it's all because of the first movie. You know, the first movie really pushed it. It's the highest uh, horror franchise in the world until Halloween 2018 was released, putting the Halloween franchise in the top spot. And so Frank uh, Manscudo, a uh, Mancuso, I don't know, Jr., produced... All the films also developed the television series, Friday the 13th series. When Which, that, have you ever seen any of that? No, I have not. Yeah. 
Me, me neither. I know that the uh, premise behind it is these like shopkeepers are going to find like these cursed objects or something. Yeah, yeah, and then it pretty much sets off you know a bunch of bad luck and curses and things from there. And, and it's a very it's, uh, Halloween three style way of doing things. Just completely yeah. eliminate any Jason Voorhees yeah. reference, <laughs> right? Which you know I. I've got opinions about the about Halloween three, but you know what? Maybe we'll talk about that in a future episode. Yeah, maybe that could be an eight. Yeah. We'll see. Yeah, but uh, all right. Yeah, the the season only ran for three, or the show only ran for three seasons uh, between eighty seven and ninety. Into the first movie. Oh, Friday the Thirteenth. Oh, such a good movie. It really was. And anybody who wants to fight me on that, I'll uh, I'll fight you on it. I don't care. Is yeah, a, I, I think, like I said, I think when people think of Friday the 13th, they immediately think about Jason Voorhees because right. obviously he's iconic. But the first film is so suspenseful and it's so like there's so much mood and atmosphere. That cabin, like people get hung up on the blood and the gore and stuff. But there's like a couple of shots like there's a really cool shot where it shows the lake and it's like the sun's going down and the boats are kind of on the shore and it's just foreboding and this like heavy feeling. And and I I think people get so wrapped up in the, the slasher blood Jason stuff that the nuance, especially that first film gets lost. Oh yeah. The, the first film did a lot for how those types of movies were really filmed. You know, Mm -hmm. I, I feel like, it gave a lot of story and, you know, and plot and character development and whatnot to characters that, you know, went on later to be killed. That really doesn't happen much anymore. It seems like now there's a rush to get into yeah. the killing field. And whereas this one, the killing was kind of the, the push through the movie, but it happened all throughout the movie. It constantly had this, this feeling of suspense within it because you didn't really know when it was going to happen. Friday the 13th did a really good job of making you actually care about the kids because that's the thing. Most of these slasher films, you don't give a damn. There might be one or two, but you know that they're just there for the body count. Whereas with this one... And, you know, like the first Nightmare on Elm Street and and some of the sequels here there, like there's actually like characters that you care about that you're like, you're interested to see if they make it to the end. Right. Which the only clue that gives you like to when somebody's about to be killed and it's something you don't even notice is that. So Harry, how did you pronounce his last name? I believe it's Mancini. I see. I've got that. It's, uh, Mandafini. <laughs> but anyway, so in a way of not manipulating the audience, there's no music played except for when the killer is about to do his thing. Like that's the only time in the entire movie that music is actually played. There's sound effects and things, but there's no actual music. The score does not happen at all except for when there's a killing about to happen. And it's seen from from the uh, the first person view, which can we stop and talk about a second? You know, we I mentioned the filming of it, but the fact that they filmed the entire thing from the first person view of the killer, you know, yeah, until the killing actually happened, you know, and, until the murders actually went through is a really cool, you know, technique, in my opinion, a really cool little thing to, you know, completely hide who the killer is by looking through their eyes and moving the movie forward that way. And yeah. I, I don't know. I, every time I watch it, I think, God, that's cool. Why don't, why don't they do that anymore? You know, 
it's always seen from the uh, the person who's about to be killed's kind of perspective, where you see the the killer pop up around them in some way, instead of yeah. just seeing what the killer is doing the entire way through. I think is so, a really badass way. Let me. I, I want to make a quick correction, so any horror nerds listening won't scream at me. Don Mancini is the guy who created and written uh, Chucky, a child's ah. play. You, Harry Manfredini is the musical composer. My apologies. Please continue. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, again, so that first person thing is cool for a couple of reasons. Number one, it hides who the killer is. It's right. not, I feel like, especially with people like Jason and Michael Myers and stuff, it's sort of like, you don't, I mean, I guess you want to see what it looks like under the mask, but that doesn't really matter. Like, it doesn't really matter what it is or who it is. Right. Um, if you just look at the the way that we look at killers and things, you know, I think that there's always this idea and this thought and this, this curiosity of what was the killer doing? Why were they doing mm -hmm. it? Mm -hmm. And this movie is really the only movie that I know of that really gives you more of that perspective. And we completely jumped away from that. Yeah. It's and, a way of really building suspense. And to be honest with you, it was as much as of, of just a, slasher through and through that it was it's also a bit of a whodunit because okay. for i i think for again not knowing in a, obviously in 2021 it's hard to not know all the spoilers and all this shit but right seeing it for the first time these counselors are being picked off one by one you don't know if it's one of the other counselors. You don't know if it's somebody else. You get little clues from the conversations that they're having and stuff, but you don't really know until, until near the end. And even when they do initially reveal the killer, you don't know that's the killer. Right. It, it kind of, you see her and she really at first kind of plays the motherly, uh, you know, character who just doesn't know what's going on at first. And, is really, I feel like, initially just trying to lure kids out into a, another place where she can kill them. And that, to me, is really awesome that it, you know, you see this killer or through the killer's eyes the entire time, and then there's the reveal of who the killer is, and your first initial thought is, it can't be that old lady. <laughs> it no, just, it, can't, it, it be can't be Betsy Palmer. No. There's no way it's Betsy Palmer. No. Um, I don't think anybody expected Betsy Palmer to show up, because at that point, she was... Oscar-winning actors at that point, which I know that when he went to go cast that part, he was trying to find somebody who was known, but whose career was on decline, so he could afford uh -huh. the character, so he could afford well, the actor. So, do you know the story behind why Betsy Palmer took the job? I know what I know, but what do you know? <laughs> well, the the story I read was basically she she hated the script. She read the script and was like, "This is awful. This is terrible." But I do need a new car. So what they did was, I think she was paid a thousand dollars a day and she was there. She was on set for 10 or 12 days. And basically she was like, no one's ever going to see this piece of shit. This is a terrible movie. This is stupid. Sure. I'll do it. I need a new car. <laughs> I, I heard the whole thing, the same exact thing as well, except, <laughs> you know, part of where she was trying to get her career back was on Broadway. And that just wasn't sticking the landing <laughs> at all. Right. Her car broke down on the way to filming. And, <laughs> and so like, she knew that she was in need of money because her career was going nowhere. And then her yeah. car broke down on the way to filming the first scene. 
And she thought, shit, now I really need this job. So uh, another really funny side note that I just found out today about Betsy Palmer is she was not as familiar with this kind of acting. She obviously did more drama and whatever. So she was rehearsing the fight scene with Adrian King, the, the kind of the final girl of the movie. And when they're like wrestling and tumbling, Betsy Palmer just slaps the shit out of her and Adrian King just busts out in tears and is like, uh, Sean Cunningham's like, what's going on? And, and he's like, Betsy, did you hit her? She's like, yeah, we were rehearsing the fight scene. He was like, we don't actually hit each other. <laughs> I guess when Betsy Palmer was, you know, do, making movies and stuff before that, maybe they didn't hit each other. I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't, don't think they, she ever been in a movie with a fight scene. It's true. I don't, I don't know that she was she ever, ever in a fight scene. Like yeah. Yeah. I don't think she ever did that before. I mean, I definitely know that it was, it was definitely outside of, of her thing. And it, and I don't know if you know, but Betsy Palmer was a method actor. She was in my, from what I could find, one of the first true method actors gave her character an entire backstory that nobody knew <laughs> until after <laughs> filming was over. She gave like this in like in-depth backstory, you know, which parts of which she told to the writers, which they actually ended up using in the movie. But okay. there was this entire thing that she came up with for uh, for Miss Voorhees. Nobody knew, and I, you know, in my opinion, great. It gave her yeah. it gave her what she needed to uh, to really land that part and make it what yeah. it was. But it's uh it's hilarious to me that that she hated this script. Yeah. Her, her car broke down and probably on the way to filming came up with this backstory and then probably stayed in character the entire time. And I do know that they actually filmed a bit before she was ever actually cast. So, you know, I don't know if she got a a look at the dailies or whatnot at that point and was like, okay, I can use this or whatnot. I don't know, but it's, it's hilarious to me that that she did that. Before she came to set, they did like with a lot of those POV shots, they basically had other cast members like do stand-ins. And so yeah. like a lot of the first couple kills that you see where you just see hands and arms and, and whatever, those are just whatever actor was available to do it. <laughs> right. There was a lot of that kind of stuff that happened in most of those early low budget movies. Mm-hmm. It's incredible the money that it made because on a $550,000 budget, it made 59.8 million. I mean, that's, that's a lot a of return. That's a hell of a return. Yeah. So, yeah. but before it had that financing, Cunningham actually believed in the movie so much that he took out a full page ad in the July 4th, 1979 edition of Variety with the, I don't know if you've ever seen it, but it's the Friday the 13th uh, blocky letters and things crashing through a window or glass pane. Like yeah. he took yeah. out an entire page ad with that before it ever had funding. And it got such a, you know, a response that they, uh, they were like, okay, well now, you know, we, we got to do this. It was Georgetown Productions that picked it up and they were like, okay, well, you know, here, here's money. (laughs) Go make this movie now. And gave them the 550. What's kind of interesting about that ad too, is not only did it, did it do exactly what you said, but as they were coming up with the idea, because that wasn't the original title of the film. No, uh, the original title was called A Long Night at Camp Blood. Yes. Um, and he decided, again, talking about the Halloween, you know, riding on that coattail. He yeah. was like, let's just pick a day and make it a day. He was unsure that there wouldn't be another film by that same name. So he was like, I'll just put out a big ad 
for this film and see if anybody else has that name. And there was, there was a, yeah, film there was a out. Friday the 13th, the orphan. Yep. Which I've never seen and never heard of until I've, I've read that today. No, it actually, it uh, was moderately successful at best. I mean, it, it really had yeah. no following. I've never seen it or heard of it before this research. Somebody still threatened to sue, <laughs> but nobody oh, ever will always. Threaten yeah. to sue. And one of the guys at Georgetown paid him off and then it was done. And now I think it'd be really hard for anybody to come back and be like, that was my movie title. You know, I yeah, want it back. I mean, you know, I want Rosie's. Right. It, you know, that's that's never going to happen. I'm pretty sure they'd be laughed out of court, especially when I'm, I'm pretty sure it's on record somewhere. They were paid off, you know, for that film. Yeah. Or they the settled out of court or something. You there's know. there's enough trivia in this world that shows that that happened that I don't think yeah. it, they're of any risk. So, yeah. So did you know that the camp? was actually a functional camp and is still operating. Do you know the name of the camp? I couldn't say it if my life depended on it. No be busu. No be <laughs> busu. <laughs> I'm going to assume that's Native American. <laughs> I would I would think so. Quite quite a difference from Camp Crystal Lake. <laughs> and where is it? I think it was I in, want to say it's New Jersey. Maybe? I was I was thinking upstate New York. Um, yeah, somewhere in that area. I um, to visit it. Yeah, I think it'd be fun to go visit it. Uh, what I think is even funnier is the neighborhood that my parents live in is Crystal Lake. Like, I know, I the, love that. Yeah, they actually live just off of Crystal Lake Drive. The lake they live on is Crystal Lake. I think I it's hilarious. It. Every time we go and visit them, I think about it. Yeah. I love it. Yeah, it's great. So, all right. Who was the film's biggest star? Well, I'm, uh, name-wise at the time would have been Betsy Palmer, but most people didn't even know she was in the movie until near the end. Uh, however, I think I know where you're going with this, and I'll let you uh No, let no, you no. Go, go ahead. Who was the film's biggest star? Well, at the time, he wasn't a star, but it was Kevin Bacon's first big role. Wrong. Kevin Bacon hadn't done much before Friday the 13th, of course. I mean, he just had the small part in Animal House. He was still trying to make a name for his house, but at the time, the biggest star of the movie was Harry Crosby. And do you know why he was the film's biggest star? I do not. Because his dad is Bing Crosby. You know, is, oh, White is Christmas, he really? Bing Crosby, yeah. I did not so, know that. And he was actually a bigger name than than uh, Betsy was. Miss Voorhees was outshined. <laughs> and, <laughs> I mean, and of course, actually... Nobody really knew that she was in the movie until after the movie came out. Well, yeah, you know. they didn't advertise like, well, I don't know. I'm not sure if the trailers like showed Betsy Palmer at all. I'm pretty I would sure. I like to think they didn't. Yeah, I'm pretty sure the trailers didn't. I mean, I haven't seen an original trailer for it, but pretty sure the trailers didn't because I feel like that would have spoiled part of it. Yeah, for sure. You know, of course, they could have just shown the part where, you know, before she was outed as the killer and probably been okay. Because let's be honest, audiences weren't smart at that time. Yeah, but if they were showing, you know, that killer mommy, killer, like yeah. that kind of stuff, that yeah. would have been kind of a giveaway, I think. Yeah. So there is an element to horror movies as a whole that this movie, I feel like, really started. Or not started, but really kind of brought a little bit more to the forefront. And why was, you know, Jason's mom on the hunt? Why was she killing? Well... So, like you said, this was not necessarily the first time this comes up, but this is when it was first, like, really driven home. She was killing these counselors because they were too busy having sex to pay attention to her little boy who was drowning in the lake. Right. Which, there's something about this concept of horror movies that I think is hilarious, because parents... 
became outraged, especially the conservative Christian moms of this time. They were saying, you know, don't let your kids watch these movies. You know, they're violent, they're gory, it's going to influence them to kill people, and blah, blah. But how many movies do you know of, you know, slasher movies especially, where you see the kids having promiscuous sex and doing drugs getting murdered? Mm-hmm. Which mm-hmm. is essentially all the things that those conservative moms were against. <laughs> and They could have used this as learning tools. They could have. Now, sure, yes, they were bloody, they were violent, they were, you know, you, you did see the promiscuous sex, the drug use, and blah, blah, blah. But yeah. that's there's a concept within that that, to me, is always hilarious that, you know, these moms spoke out against these movies that were driving home the very concepts they were driving home. And I I don't know why that was missed. Yeah, and and what's also really funny about that is I, I don't know you you probably came across this doing your research, but part of the reason Sean S. Cunningham wanted to make this movie was because he wanted to get away from working with Wes Craven. Yeah, because, he was a producer on Last House on the Left. Yes. And he was starting to kind of be known as this, like, if for anybody who hasn't seen Last House on the Left, it is a hard watch. It, it is. is. It's one of those movies where when it's over, you feel like you need to take a shower. If you want to compare it to something, I would say it's hard, like Devil's Rejects is hard to watch. Like, yeah. there's things that happen that make you go, Ugh. Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> Yeah, and so and you can't really do anything but make those sounds and you watch it because you're watching that movie. You don't watch it for any other reason. Yeah, and and so to I guess as a palate cleanser, he decided to make Friday the thirteenth, which yeah. is if you don't know about movies like Last House on the Left, Friday the thirteenth seems like it's pretty hardcore. But it's really not in comparison because he also made some like family films. He made some like little kids sport movies and stuff that didn't really go anywhere. So then he wanted to go back to horror, but not to that degree. Right. And, uh, you know, I I know there's a lot of directors and writers and producers and stuff that have kind of jumped the line between uh, the family movies and the horror movies and stuff. There, there've been quite a few, but it was like, once Cunningham took that jump away from Friday the 13th. It's like, he could never quite get his career back to that point. You know, it's like Friday the 13th was what he was known for forever. He did put his, you know, put his feet back in the water of the 13th, you know, for a while after, you know, quite a few of the movies came out. Like like we talked about on a previous podcast, Sam Raimi, you know, yeah. he was able to take what he did on The Evil Dead and launch his career and, and do other big budget, big name films where Cunningham never really got past that kind of B level, which I think is kind of sad because like we've been saying about this movie, I think the the blood and the effects and all that overshadow the actual like it, it's a well-made film the first oh, yeah. friday the 13th is a very well-made hitchcockian kind of slow burn horror film oh yeah it, it definitely is it's very underrated for you know again the techniques that they use in filming yeah it's, but one of the things about it that you and i have talked about many many times is the practical effects of movies and with a lower budget you don't have the option and really the the hindrance of the ability at the time but with a lower budget, you're kind of forced to do more practical effects, which was a lot cheaper then than it is now, and are 
movie effects icon. Yes. The master of horror makeup was <laughs> at the helm of this movie, Mr. Yep. Tom Savini. And uh, it's funny. I actually just recently listened to an interview with Tom Savini, and he talked about some of the things that they did on this film. And I got a pretty cool piece of trivia, but I'll, I'll save it for a little bit later. There's there's really three pieces of, of the makeup trivia that I'm going to go over, but uh, okay. there's three that I think were, were great in this. So, okay. all right. A lot of the uh, final parts of the special effects were actually, since it was a real working camp, were actually baked in the pizza ovens of the kitchen in the camp. And that to me is awesome that I don't know if it was they did not prepare enough or they were planning on doing that or it was just stuff that was done on, you know, on set where they were like, hey, we could do this better, but we got to get an oven and they use that. And if it wasn't filmed at a real camp, they definitely couldn't have done that by any means. Yeah, so for sure. Also, one of the actors was actually temporarily blinded by the fake blood in the movie. Yep. Was that your was that your your nugget? But, okay. Okay. <laughs> but, but but in that interview, uh Savini brings that up and because they were asking him, you know, you've done all these great things and it's you know amazing work. He says, Can you think of a time when an effect didn't work really well? And he's like, Well, one time I kind of blinded a guy. <laughs> he he went into that a little bit. So for the scene in which Bill, Mr. Harry Crosby, son of Bing, which who the hell is named Bing? I mean First name. The way you just said that, Harry Crosby, son of Bing, like (laughs) he sounds biblical. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, Harry Crosby, son of Bing, is killed by multiple arrows, uh, one of which lands in his eye. So Tom Savini used fake blood formula that included a wedding agent called Photo Flow, uh, which is supposed to make the fake blood soak into clothing and look more realistic. Photo Flow is not an ingredient used for quote unquote safe blood. (laughs) <laughs> meaning that blood that's going to be encountering the face of an actor. So, you know, the blood doesn't need to soak into the skin of an actor. So, or the eyeball. Or the eyeball, right. So for the arrow in the eye moment, a uh, latex uh, appliance was put over Crosby's face along with the blood. As the scene was shot, the blood welled up into Crosby's eye, causing intense pain when the appliance was removed. <laughs> so... It's like while it was on there, it was okay. But when they removed it, it's like it like leaked into his eye. So you you know he's ultimately fine, but temporarily Sucked blinded. At the time. Yeah, I'm sure. Which I wonder how many of those sort of mess ups happen on low budget horror movies where it's uh, all the time. Oh, I'm sure. Now what's your, what's your third one? And I'll see if it's the one that I have. Is it about Kevin Bacon and the arrow effect in the neck and about how no, it almost didn't happen? This is cool. Okay. Yeah. No. Go ahead, go ahead. All and right. then I'll tell you mine. I tried to like to memorize this, but there's too many placements of things. So Kevin Bacon is killed with an arrow shoved through his throat underneath the bed he's lying on. Those who haven't seen it now know how Kevin Bacon dies. And that's actually one of the things I was referencing when I was talking about right as the murder's happening, it goes away from the first person view of, of the killer to that, which, you know, I feel like would be more interesting to see the first person view of how she would have done that. But then we couldn't have got all this. But anyway, it was the most complex death for the film. To make it work, Bacon had to crouch under the bed and insert his head through a hole in the mattress. Then a latex neck and chest appliance were attached, given the appearance that he was actually lying down. Getting the setup right took hours, and Bacon had to stay in that uncomfortable position the entire time. 
I mean, to have a A-list actor stay in an uncomfortable position for hours now would be completely unthinkable, but right. it'd all be done CGI anyway. So for the bloody final moment, Savini, also under the bed, with Kevin Bacon crouching under the bed, would plunge the arrow up through the fake neck while his assistant, also under the bed, operated a pump that would make the blood flow up. To further complicate things, the crew needed someone to stand in for the killer's hand as it held Bacon's head down, and so they set it on photographer Richard Furry. Fury? I don't know. F-E-U-R-Y. So there were essentially three grown men <laughs> under a bed, and then, you know, just to make this whole thing work, along with all the other stuff they needed just to make it happen. All right, so after hours of setup and latex building and planning, it was time to shoot the scene. And when the moment actually happened, the hose for the blood pump disconnected, knowing that he basically had only one take. Otherwise, they have to build a whole new latex appliance and set everything up again. The uh, director of photography grabbed the hose and blew into it until blood flew out, saving the scene. <laughs> Really? Oh, that is such a great moment when that yeah. arrowhead comes through his neck. Oh, yeah. And you see the blood kind of like bubble a little bit. Oh, yeah. And that's I'm, because he's blowing that straw. Yeah. But I really feel like the bubbles kind of really added to it. They do. But, they but make to, it so much cooler. But to know that it's just him trying to save the scene. So here, here's my Tom Savini story. So I think for most people, one of the most iconic moments of the entire Friday the 13th series, really, is the at the very end of this one, Adrian King is floating on the canoe in the middle of the, the lake. The music is happy. It's obviously the end. It feels very peaceful. All of a sudden, zombie Jason Voorhees comes jumping out of the lake, grabs her and pulls her in. Right. If you've never seen the movie before, it's one of the great jump scares of all time. That was not in the script. No, 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 it was not. No. Tom Savini suggested to Cunningham, hey, how about we have Jason jump out of the lake and grab her? And Cunningham was like, he's dead. And, he, and Savini goes, who gives a shit? It's a dream sequence. Even, though, still, uh, he, even though we had seen his head about 10 minutes before. <laughs> he's like, eh. We'll just call it a dream sequence. It'll be great. It'll be great. And uh, that was spurred on because Tom Savini had just recently seen the movie Carrie. Mm -hmm. Carrie has a very similar jump scare at the very end. But yeah, so he got Ari Lehman or Lehman, L-E-H-M-A-N, uh, who's the little boy who plays Jason. And they put this big, weird, deformed, like prosthetic face on him and then added all the extra goopy stuff to make him look all rotten and, and everything. But that was the genius of Tom Savini. That was just something he thought of. Okay, so two things on that. So, yes, it was not actually in the final script, but it's actually debated who actually came up with that because it's actually disputed okay. between Victor Miller, the writer, Tom Savini, and Ron Kurtz, who the screenwriter. So okay. more people say Savini did it, but all three of them actually take credit for it, and it's not <laughs> actually said who actually created it. And Ari Lehman actually now has, he still, you know, tries to be an actor and he's more of a performing artist, artist now, no, but no, no, oh, this was my bombshell. And oh, he already knew it. <laughs> okay. I'll let, I'll let you tell it then. Go on. Ari Lehman, who was, who played Jason at the very end of the original Friday the 13th, now has a heavy metal band called First Jason. Yeah. Dude, when I tell you I was listening to this shit for hours at work today. Were you? It's, it is so bad <laughs> that it's good. Like, okay. It's, it's is it bad in an ironic way? Okay. All the lyrics are about Jason Voorhees. 
Okay. They're all about just the, the Friday the 13th series. It's like got Kitar and it's very like, I feel like it's ironic, but it's actually good. Like he can actually sing. The songs have hooks. I sent it to a couple of my buddies and they were like, you son of a bitch. This is stuck in my head now. <laughs> it's I would highly recommend watching some of the music videos and stuff. It's a trip. After I found it, I meant to like go and find the uh, find the music videos, find the music in general. I just never did. But the fact that there is that he has that band, you know, it, it makes you think of the the actors and things that hold on to one role for their basically entire life, and that's basically that's what, what you have here. Like, okay, so in 2019, he released an EP called Lord of the Lake. All right. And the cover is Jason Voorhees with this, like, he's got the hockey mask, but he's got this crown and he's got his machete. It looks like a broadsword. And the titles on the uh, record are Voorhees is the name, Kill for Mother, Lord of the Lake, Dark is the Deep. And rising to the surface. <laughs> I love it. I'm going to have to find it now. I think he has a sense of humor about it. Like if you watch the videos and you look at the uh, the album covers and stuff, I, I think he understands that this is silly. But at the same time, that's an iconic moment in horror history. And the fact that he just embraced it and rolled with it. Yeah. It's kind of fun. I, I, you know, very few people can say that they are this iconic character. Right. So in the original script, Jason Voorhees was not actually a kid who drowned in the lake because counselors were too busy having sex. He's just an ordinary kid who accidentally drowned, which I don't know how that script would have played out with the whole point of the killings being, you know, right. so I don't know how that would have worked by any means, but that really was the uh, the way that it worked. And uh, yeah, I'm kind of curious. I'm not one for reading screenplays and things, but I would be interested to get my hands on that and just kind of read through that and see how that worked. I, I think that this, this is blasphemy, I know, but I'm just going to say it. I am not as into the Halloween. Uh, let's just talk about the original films, not the whole series. But right. like, I like the original Friday the 13th a little bit better than I like the original Halloween. I understand That's Halloween fair. is, I think Halloween is probably considered a quote unquote better film. Yeah. Well, um, it probably had a bigger budget. It, oh, it did. It did. But, uh, but also like, I like that there's an element of who done it and why are they doing it and all that. Whereas Halloween and as the films progress, it gets super convoluted and they try to explain things unnecessarily. But like Michael Myers, there, there was no reason he was just the shape and he just was stalking people and killing them, which is scary. I get that. Like no motivation, no understanding. It can be scary. But with Friday the 13th, it's like, obviously you don't know until the end. But it kind of, right. like, explains why she right. was doing what she was doing. Okay, so you want to guess what Halloween's budget was? I know it wasn't huge. I know it wasn't, like, crazy high. It was 325000 so it was less than Friday the 13th. But if you think about it, there was no big special effects moments. No. There was no arrow through Kevin Bacon's neck. There was no zombie jumping out of the lake. There was none of those things. Which, like we talked about, the movie doesn't actually have a lot of on-screen killing, if any. Right. I, I'm going to have to go back and watch it again just to, you know. Yeah, I'm, there's I'm a couple of actual, so. like, on-screen yeah. kills. I, I remember the part where uh, Michael Myers jumps out uh, from 
the back seat of the car and chokes yeah. the girl to death. Uh, it's, um, it's nothing like the uh, the remakes that we've gotten. <laughs> No, 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 no. Nothing, nothing like, like Rob that. Zombie's Halloween. And, and nothing like Friday the 13th, where you actually no. see, like, within the first 10 minutes, that girl, the hitchhiker girl, gets shoved up against a tree and her night, her, her throat gets slit. Like, Which I saw the, the remake, and I honestly just don't remember any of it. It just wasn't a memorable one. I remember the remake of Nightmare on Elm Street more than I do Friday the 13th. Oh, I've never seen the remake of Friday the 13th. Okay. Uh, sorry, that's what I was... That's what I was at in my brain. But yeah. No, um, this was the very beginning of the original Friday the 13th. Okay. Friday the 13th definitely had a lot more effects and on-screen killings and blood and whatnot. Yeah. He was able to do more with Halloween because maybe he had a bit more experience at that point making movies than Mr. Cunningham did. Well, I don't think there's any debate, at least in and my he's mind. he's a better filmmaker. John Carpenter is, is a yeah. horror genius and Cunningham is really good. You know, I think that Carpenter is on a level a little bit above Cunningham. I mean, Carpenter, yes, he's a genius, and Cunningham is Friday the 13th. Yeah, pretty yeah. much. Pretty yeah, much. He, he doesn't. Carpenter. He, he was a one trick pony, basically. Yeah, Carpenter is Halloween, but he's also the thing. He's also Big Trouble in Little China, Escape from New York. Like, he's got a lot of notches on his belt, whereas Cunningham, oh, yeah. this is kind of his main thing. Right. I mean, Carpenter's got so much to his name. And let's not forget not, that he also makes music. <laughs> yeah. And, and also, let's not, uh, don't for a minute think that Carpenter hasn't put out his fair share of stinkers. He's got oh, no. some, some huge misses in his catalog as well. But yeah. the career differential there. But again, for me, especially like Halloween time, you're hanging out with your friends, you want to watch a scary movie. Friday the 13th, I think is more fun. It's more entertaining. I get that Halloween is is I guess a little bit better made, but especially with the kind of horror movies I like, I have more fun with something like Friday the 13th. And I think I don't know, I feel like Friday the 13th has its own legacy all within itself. And I think oh, part sure. of that has to do with the 16 movies that have come out and the TV series and the comic books and blah, blah, mm. you know, and lest I forget that awesome NES game where he's got the purple jumpsuit. <laughs> yeah. I love that game. Oh yeah. I mean, <laughs> me too. It was, it was so much fun. I had a buddy years ago that actually dressed up as that Jason Voorhees following. Yeah. So. And like, obviously, you know, Jason's not Jason as we know him is not in the first Friday the 13th. Right. Um, but to me that it took the Michael Myers idea and made him bigger and scarier and more aggressive. I know we're not really getting into the sequels too much yeah. for this conversation, but I think part four, which was called the final chapter. Which was not the final chapter. No, not even close. Um, wasn't even the halfway point. I would argue that it's the best in the series outside of the original. It's the best quote unquote Jason movie. You mean you didn't like, like Freddy versus Jason? <laughs> I did. I actually had a lot of fun with that one, too. That movie was a fun movie. It was not a good movie. No, and, and too often people, I don't know who to blame for this, but like it's the same as just within the past year or two, they did that Kong versus Godzilla film. Yeah. Nobody cares why they're fighting. Just get to them fighting. Yeah. The whole convoluted story about... Freddy needs kids to be afraid of him, so he uses Jason to gives a shit. Just beat the hell out of each it's, other. Get it's on not. With it. it wasn't even a good story. 
It was just, no. it was a story for the purpose of being a story. But that movie went through all kinds of development hell oh, to oh, ever yeah. even exist. So oh, yeah. the fact that it even exists is kind of a blessing. But back to part four real fast. Another reason that that one's so cool is Tom Savini came back for that one. He, he really did think that was going to be the end. They asked him to do the sequel and he said, no, Jason's alive. That's stupid. Like, I'm not going to do yeah. that. And then they they said, come on, please come back for this one. It's the last one. We're going to kill him off. And he was like, oh, if I get to kill him, then yeah, let's do it. And of course, that is not what happened. No. Um, but if if you if you're new to this franchise and you're interested in getting into it, obviously, the first one is is probably the best. But if you're looking for a Jason movie, I, I think part four is probably where to go. Actually, I think the first four are just, it's a good yeah. block. It's a good block. I mean, the third one, not a good movie by any stretch, but it's a fun movie, especially when yeah. you watch it in 2D, knowing that it was made yes. for 3D. It's funny you should say that, because I would say the same thing. I would say number one is the best, then number four, then number three and number two. <laughs> yeah. And I think that, like, yeah, watching those four, you, you get the idea. There's, I mean, there's some fun moments in, like, part eight, Jason goes to Manhattan. There's a couple funny things. Which, uh, which um, I'll bring this nugget up later, but um, Jason Goes to Hell was actually supposed to be Jason Takes L.A. Mm, <laughs> uh, yeah, mm. which I'll go into to all that on a later episode. But okay. there is a music credit to this movie that does not get credit. Do you know who it is? I don't. It's Mr. not Don Mancini because he wrote Chucky and I yes. messed that up. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's Mr. Lou Reed. Lou Reed actually had a farm right by the camp and would actually like go out on his, on his deck and play guitar and he would come and hang out with them. And like he would play guitar for them at night while they were eating and he would sit around the campfire with them. The fact that Lou Reed was like, hey, there's just this cool thing happening over here <laughs> and yeah. just going up. Uh, and the fact that Lou Reed got no credit anywhere in it to me is, is is stupid. Now, as someone who is not super familiar with Lou Reed, but what I have heard, I'm not a fan of. Oh no, me all either. I can all I can imagine is being on this actual camp covered in fake blood. <laughs> I've been running around the woods for 12 hours. I'm trying to eat a bologna sandwich and Lou Reed is singing in my ear. I would, I would snap. Okay. Lou Reed's singing. Yes. But, um, <laughs> but uh, you know, Lou Reed playing guitar, I think is fine. I think he's a fine guitar okay. player. You know, he's, yeah, yeah. he's not the best guitar player, but you know, I think it would be neat to have Lou Reed hang out. You know, that uh, that Lou Reed album that Metallica did was just god awful. <laughs> yeah, I, that's that's the that's my main reference point. Yeah, fair enough. And I think that may have been Lou Reed's last thing he ever did, but it um, probably was. Uh, do you have any more nuggets of fun facts from uh, for uh, Friday the Thirteenth? Well, you stole my first Jason thing. I thought that was so a this, fun one, and I wanted that one, but I, you know, yeah, it's okay. It's the, the important thing is now the world knows. Yes. Um, so this isn't necessarily fun, but something I, I read about today, Adrian King, who who played the final girl, and and I I'm blanking on her character's name. Uh, the, the, the the concept of the final girl, I I love the concept of the final girl, the, the yeah. final one making it, which Jamie Lee Curtis really cornered yeah. that market. But go on, go on. And uh, Bruce Campbell plays that role in the first Evil Dead movie as well. Right. Uh, yeah. But after the film came out, she actually got a stalker. 
who started to follow her around, did did some really creepy stuff. The creepiest thing he did was he would take Polaroid pictures of her while she was like out in the yard or jogging or something and would slide them under her front door. Oh, yeah. It was really creepy and weird. And so she kind of became a recluse. Like she wanted to do yeah. more films. But it kind of freaked her out, and she moved to London. She still did some acting gigs, a lot of voiceover work. And and now, you know, that she's older and stuff, she'll go to these horror conventions. She does interviews for Friday the 13th special features and stuff. Yeah, it kind of kind of scared her off there for a while, and I, I don't blame her. I mean, that's pretty wild. Yeah, uh, so Friday the 13th, I think, actually started the trend of the critics have never liked horror movies. You know, as we've talked about, our yep. favorite horror basher, Mr. Roger <laughs> Ebert. Yeah, Craig's never really correctly. If I remember correctly, he said some pretty ugly stuff about this one. Uh, yeah, I did not dig up dig up his, but you know, critics would say things like Los Angeles Times gave it a uh, silly, boring, youth generated horror movie, and that was pretty much the overall opinion of it was that it was a low budget youth horror movie. You know, something for the yeah. kids to go see, and it was really not given anything more than that. And uh, critics said, you know, we'd be surprised if it ever had a uh, sequel and so forth and so on. Little did they know that it was going to have 15 sequels. Um, Why were they wrong? Yeah. they. Uh, but Roger and Ebert spent an entire TV episode on it. They, uh, you know, called it a bomb, gory, you know, thriller, yeah. blah, blah, blah. You know, they're, they're run-of-the-mill things. They didn't say anything fun about it like they did uh, Night of the Living Dead. <laughs> Um, right, right. You know, but then audiences turned around and loved it because, you know, there really was nothing quite like that. But um, a lot of critics, you know, kind of panned it and compared it to Halloween, which I feel like was an unfair comparison. But it just, you know, because Halloween was another big horror movie of the time, it kind of was put up against it. Well, and hindsight 2020, knowing that Cunningham basically said, let's make Halloween, but make it bloodier and you know, whatever, I, I see why they would be kind of compared yeah. a lot. Which he, like was, said, he, he was quoted as saying he wanted it to be Halloween, but more of a roller coaster ride. Yes. Yeah. He wanted more excitement, more thrills, more suspense. And and like I said, I get that Halloween is a is a masterpiece and it's, it's you know, in a lot of people, top five, top 10 horror films of all time. But subjectively, like what I want to watch I would rather watch Friday the 13th than, yeah. than Halloween. I, I would too. You know, both both series had lots of sequels. I'm yeah. pretty sure Friday the 13th had more sequels than Halloween. But And two, and I I don't know the years on this, so I could be, could be mistaken, but Halloween 2 is basically kind of the same thing as Halloween, the original, just in a slightly different location with a lot more blood and gore. And I can't help but think, you know, because Halloween was super successful, then Friday the 13th comes out and does basically Halloween at a camp with blood and gore. Then they said, okay, well then we'll do Michael Myers with the blood and the gore and try to one-up each other. That's horror directors love to mess with each other and try to one-up each other. Which I would think that with Friday the 13th, Really, I feel like really kicked off the whole blood and gore thing, which I could be completely wrong about that and correct me if I am. But 
I feel like maybe when Halloween 2 came around, they said, okay, we do this now. And they just did it. So, you know, yeah. I don't know about that. I'll have to dig more into it. Yeah, because I think Halloween, let's see, Friday the 13th came out in 1980, and then Halloween 2 came out in 1981. So, like you said, at that point, 81, 82, 83, the, the, the horror movies, that was when the blood and the gore really started to to launch off like we talked about before 1981 the evil dead just buckets of blood and gore everywhere right. a lot of other lower budget films were were kind of uh that was when a lot of the lucio fulci movies george romero's dawn of the dead was 79 uh, or 78 well the first like halloween was 78 yeah they were starting to get a little more violent they were they were dancing with the line and really hadn't kind of yeah. found their footing yet and, and by today's standards fairly cartoony looking blood guts yeah. and gore especially um, when you're watching high death yes for sure and i and if i'm not mistaken cunningham the reason he wanted savini to work on friday the 13th was because of his work on dawn of the dead yes and so he saw that and was like Let's mix that kind of effects with that Halloween style stalker slasher thing. And I think it, it worked big time. It obviously worked because we got a great movie out of it. And subsequently 15 varying degrees of quality sequels. Yes, yes, <laughs> very much so. Friday the 13th. I think I make it a goal to watch it on Friday the 13th every year. And I've only succeeded two times. <laughs> like every year I think, oh, I should watch that tonight. I just never do. So I'm, I don't know. I'm actually, after this conversation, depending on how I feel, I might try to watch it tonight, actually. I'm, I'm kind of in the mood for it. I, I think uh, I want to revisit it. It's been a minute. It's on my list of movies to watch here soon. So, yeah. But anyway, Monster, anything for the people? If you haven't, if you're not familiar with the series, I would highly recommend watching a few of them. Uh, obviously, the first one is a classic. Uh, part four is really good. Part three is is fun. You you could do a lot worse than than watching the first four or so Friday the Thirteenth movies. Oh yeah, you could watch any of the Expendables movies. Why would you ever want to do that? Well, I'm just saying you could do worse. So, <laughs> all right, uh, people, yeah, go watch Friday the Thirteenth. Um, actually, watch Friday the Thirteenth, Nightmare on Elm Street, and Halloween. All of them. Good first outings in those series. I will stand Absolutely. by it. All right. Until next time, everybody. This has been Danger. It's been Monster. Have a good day.